I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode... This is a day we've all been working to and working for on the path to yes. We'll catch you up on everything you smack up. USMCA deal was finally reached, but not everyone's happy about the deal, so we'll find out from the trade guys just what's going on there. And... Well, I think it's clear that this is not something that is going to be solved before the presidential race or perhaps for many years overall. But right now, the markets are looking forward to something like a phase one trade deal. As U.S.-China trade tensions ease, doesn't end the business uncertainty. We'll talk about that. Plus, is the World Trade Organization's appeals court broken? We'll discuss all of that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, we have so much to talk about. We've got Usmaco, we've got China, we've got Trump, we've got Lighthizer, we've got the Mexicans, we've got everything. W- WTO, if we want WTO, to get there. WTO, if we, we can get time. to it. Um, but it is the most wonderful time of year to talk about trade. Well, certainly we have lots to talk about. There's no, no, a lot no to question. Talk about. And Bill was right. And I intend to remind everybody because it, it doesn't happen very often. And uh, as I said before in the prediction business, usually people don't remember when you're wrong. But if you're right, you remind them. Yeah. So I'm reminding everybody I was right about this. Well, you, well okay. So, so tell us exactly what you were precisely right about. <laughs> Yeah, I can tell you don't believe me. What I've been predicting... Oh, no, I've been here. that We have this on tape. Yes. Bill was right. Right, yes. Scott? What That's I've been correct. predicting Bill for right. a year is that this was going to get through. I mean, it hasn't gotten through yet, but uh, Lighthizer did, I thought, an exceptional job of doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Right. And the reviews are in for uh, Bob Lighthizer, yes. and they are good. He negotiated... Scott's an, nodding his head. He right. negotiated an agreement uh, with the Democrats and with Republicans. The thing I that intrigued me about it, partly because of what else happened the same day, is he kind of struck a blow for the center in, in, in politics, which we've lost uh, the last 10 or so years. Yeah, heaven forbid we have a center anymore, right? Well, and what he did, you know, two things happened that day. One, the, the House passed the defense bill, the annual defense authorization. Yes. And they did it by taking most of the provisions that the progressives have put in uh, and taking them out. Uh, and the result was that a bill that passed the House by a largely uh, partisan uh, vote the first time, the second time passed by 384 votes uh, with uh, 40 progressives voting against it uh, because they got thrown under the bus by their leadership. At the same time, who is unhappy about USMCA? Senate Republicans who think, A, that they didn't get enough attention paid to them, and B, that uh, Lighthizer made too many compromises with the Democrats. Most importantly, biologics. I mean, that was the one substantive yes, that area was the thing that bothers where them. the USMCA was a step backwards versus both NAFTA but, and the previously negotiated and, and agreement. So, and so you have Senator Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania, um, warning his fellow Republicans on Sunday that the bipartisan replacement to NAFTA, which we know to be USMACA, which we believe there's now a deal for, is, is not the real deal. What's Pat well, Toomey's problem? Well, he's had these concerns all along. Look, uh, Toomey, uh, despite representing, or maybe because he represents the state of Pennsylvania, uh, he is a principled free trader. 
Yeah. Keep in mind, before he was elected uh, to the Senate, he was the president of the Club for Growth. So there he are a, very few people in Pennsylvania that are principled free traders. Yeah, I can he, he is one of them. To that. He's one of them. He's very consistent on this. He's a member of the Finance Committee. He's made his concerns about USMCA known for a long time because it does move. It while it does create some important new uh, obligations, say in the digital economy, in many of the provisions that were previously provisions that liberalized trade have been turned into sort of managed trade operations. And so that's a, that's a consistent concern that uh, I think Senator Toomey has been raising all along. But my point has been just in both cases, the body moved to the center. Yeah. In one yes. case, they, they, you know, they threw their left wing over the side. In the other case, the Republicans threw the right wing over the side. I think for political reasons, this is a good thing. I think the Congress does its best work when it tries to govern from the center. And if parties are prepared to do that, I think it bodes well for the future. On the other hand, this could be one off. Or now, two look, off, and never you will never see it again. Either way, but it was a good sign. Here's a headline none of us expected to see written in 2019: President Trump restores the bipartisan consensus on trade. That's right. Nobody expected. Didn't that. expect that. And that's kind of like the Spanish. Did Inquisition. not expect a vote on you smack us sandwiched between uh, an impeachment vote in the House and then only to be gone to the Senate after the impeachment trial if. The impeachment yeah. actually goes forward. Either. Well, that, that's okay. The, the, in these, the timetables are somewhat elastic. Look, this thing was signed by the by the leaders over a year ago. Yes. So it's been sitting around gathering dust. And one of the things I've learned about working with Congress and working with the U.S. government over the last 25 years is that they have no idea that there is there, there's a thing called opportunity cost. That if you're in business, you know that there's, time, there's of course time value of money, and opportunity cost is a real thing you've got to deal with, which is why speed's important, never comes up with the Congress, never comes up with, with an, any, very few people in the executive branch. I think the Treasury Department probably gets it. But nobody's ever in a hurry when they need to be or when people would like them to be. But in this case, I think they'll have time to do it. I don't think the consensus falls apart no matter what else gets voted on. The best quote, I thought, was from an unnamed Republican who said that, that uh, Speaker Pelosi had flipped Lighthizer upside down and shook him until the money came out. Yeah, well, yeah. He, they did get his lunch Which, money. There's no question about that. They they did well, but you know, and his comment on yesterday on I guess Face the Nation, he's not feeling was, like he got shaken. No, up, he though, said, right? you know, I've uh, I tried to do exactly what the president wanted to do. Yeah, which is construct a bipartisan coalition on on trade yeah. that addresses the concerns of workers. And he made the and point. And that's what they did. We had an election. Democrats won the House. They were the majority. I had yes. to deal with them. So and he said that's that. very practical and, and, and very good and management on his part. Senator, He said that on CBS yesterday yeah. to Margaret Brennan, and that was a very clear point he made. Yeah, right. Well, and Senator Grassley said the same thing. Right. He's, I mean, he's a Republican, chairman of the Finance Committee, but he said, you know, we had an election. The, the Democrats control the House. There has to be a compromise. Right. But we, we actually got one, which is the, the interesting part of all this, and one that looks like it's going – I mean, we, we spent almost 20 years with, you know, trade votes on Razor Edge. Passed uh, by one or two or three votes, and if this is passed overwhelmingly, something is really different than the past. Really, since the original NAFTA fight uh, in 1994, I guess it was. Well, can you guys explain? So, so one of the things that Lighthizer told Margaret Brennan yesterday was he said a Trump trade policy is going to get a lot of Democratic support. He said that. Explain why that is. Well, I'm not sure he's right about that. Um, I think this was a this may end up being a, a special case. I mean, it's not 
going to be the case on China, I don't think. Well, we're, we're going to talk, talk about, about that, that in a minute. Yeah. Look, this is this is America first. And, and keep in mind, uh, President Trump's voter base in the 2016 election included a lot of blue-collar workers in the industrial Midwest. Okay, people who had traditionally voted Democrat, yeah. and in fact, many of whom voted for Obama, probably voted for Obama twice. Okay, but we don't know enough about the individuals, but that was characteristic in, in that that uh, part of this country. So, and Trump had a special appeal to them, and frankly, his trade negotiation uh, philosophy and the objectives he set and what he pushed to get done in USMCA was precisely trying to trying to basically put America first when it comes to industrial jobs. Yeah, the only problem with that is what the Democrats would say is that he didn't do a very good job of that and they had to fix it. And they followed the script that we had talked about from the very beginning, which they began by saying, not good enough, you have to fix it. There was then a very long negotiation and at the end they said, all right, we made you fix it and now it's okay. This is their way to take credit. So it's and one of the problems that they're going to have, which you see already, is a decent number of Democrats have said, "Why are we doing this?" Because it gives the president a victory. Well, from my point of view, good policy ends up being good politics. And if they've done something good, I think they, they you know, the voters reward them. If I imagine a lot of them will take credit for it, just as well as the can, president will. Public opinion about Congress goes down when they do nothing. It doesn't go. Uh, it doesn't go down when they do something. Uh, and here. Uh, they've done something. But there is this group that said, we can't give him anything. This was a case where I think it was it was win-win. The Democrats can say legitimately, from a worker point of view, they made it better. They put in enforcement provisions. Uh, you know, They put in environmental and labor enforcement provisions that are going to strengthen the agreement and make it much more likely that Mexico will stick to its commitments. One can argue that with the new president of Mexico, not the one that negotiated it, but the new one, who is to the left of the person he succeeded, who wants to improve worker rights in Mexico, who wants to improve the state of the workers in Mexico. This was, you know, an easier negotiation, but there is still substantial skepticism that at the end of the day, the Mexican government will deliver on this. There's a lot of built-in resistance from business in Mexico to anything that gives workers more rights or raises their wages. Uh, the Democrats can argue, I think truthfully, that this agreement takes several important steps in that direction. Is there a hang-up in Mexico right now that we're, we need to be watching for well, this for a so, final yeah, sign-off on this from of, Mexico? Uh, I think Scott and I would argue it's kind of a blip. The administration, not wasting any time, formally submitted the bill on Friday. And, of course, you know, once the bill is formally submitted, it can't be changed. Right. So there it is. And the Mexicans were looking through the bill, and they discovered that it has some provisions in it that they didn't expect. One was that the United States is – the Department of Labor is, is told to send five representatives to the – be posted at the embassy in Mexico City. Then they will monitor what the Mexicans are doing in terms of honoring their commitments. And the Mexicans said, uh, you know, we never agreed to this. We don't know anything about it. I think, you know, the, the answer will be – this, you know, the United States gets to decide who it's sending to its mission, and it's it's perfectly unilateral. And the Mexicans, of course, can comment. It says, "Well, we get to decide who gets in the country, you know, and if we don't want to let them in the country. We won't let them in the country." I mean, I think this goes away, but it, there's politics here. You know, it was important for Lighthizer to say we're tough, and we're taking steps to enforce it. I think the Mexicans that had said from the beginning. We oppose inspections and we impose foreign inspectors. They needed to say that we didn't agree to that. 
and this it, is the way it, it turned out. It does have the optics of a sort of a final indignity after after basically you know dis- determining that the United States was going to be the senior party partner in this deal, and Mexico and Canada were the junior partners, and ordering them around really since the start of the negotiations, it was kind of one last. You know, and by the way, we're gonna we're gonna watch you like a hawk and check your work, and and uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna have the naughty list ready to ready to fill out. And so it just it was one more indignity that uh, that I think ultimately won't won't stop anything on either side. But but it is uh, it's a reflection of the fact that this is um, this is the Trump America first trade policy in a nutshell. We make the rules our way. We, we're gonna and if you want to deal with us, you're gonna do it our way. And so the Mexicans will put up a little bit of resistance, but at the end, they're going to sign the deal. It's going to go forward. Not only have they signed it, they've already passed it. They've already yeah. Yeah. So the Mexican hurdle is just procedural at this point. I think so. Well, yeah, I, I don't think it is a, a showstopper under any circumstances. I think it is, I would characterize it as, as you know, they've, they've suffered a lot of insults over this long process, and this is just one more at the end of the game. So, But ultimately, the Mexican economy needs the certainty associated with USMCA. That's really what business gets, despite uh, Senator Toomey's totally fair uh, assessment of this being a step backward in some ways. What you now have is certainty and predictability has returned to the market. And so even if it's a little worse in some aspects, they're, they're, we're, we're not we're no longer facing the threat of withdrawal and the, the, the what we've lived with during the negotiations. So you, I think that's good news for business everywhere and in so North this, America. Call this a win for the Trump administration. It definitely is. See, yes. look, it's another, look in, in another case, this is what candidate Trump said he would do. Yeah. And he did it. I think it's a win for both sides. I mean, I think the Democrats can legitimately say they made improvements that made it more appropriate for their voters. Uh, I also think that next no- November, people won't be paying a lot of attention to this. We'll be talking about other things. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't have much sympathy with the people who said, my God, why are you doing this? You can't give Trump a victory. You know, that's a short game. The, the long game here is they've done something that's good for workers. They've done something that's good for the economy, right. uh, which everybody will benefit from. And they've done something that probably won't be a main topic of conversation next November. So a win for all. Looks like I at this so. moment, yes. Okay. Let's talk about China. Not a win for all. Not a win for all. Okay. So are we decoupling from China? Are we integrating? Lighthizer said this weekend, again on CBS's morning show, the way to think about this deal with China is that we're trying to integrate two very different systems um, to the benefit of us both. Well, this is the phase one deal we've been talking about for a couple months now. It yep. appears to have been concluded. Uh, there, as we, there are both market access and rules components. Recall, we've talked all along that the – the, uh, the 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 initial impetus, the investigation that was called so-called 301 investigation, was about Chinese unfair practices, and really focused in many cases on domestic regulation in the Chinese economy that were unfair and created disadvantages for American competitors. Uh, and so that's been the agenda all along. But there's also been a lot of market access frustration uh, with American firms, and certainly President Trump complaining about the trade deficit and all that. So theft all, of IP. Right. Oh, well, that's the rule side. The, the, no question on the on the on the investigation side. The IP theft and uh, and subsidies were a major problem. But there was also a desire for some improved market access for U.S. exporters. It appears that the Phase One deal has some of both. Uh, specifically, there's about 
oh, $200 billion over two years of additional purchases by the Chinese government over and above. Now, keep in mind- Purchases of, of goods and services from the United States over yes, the next two years. Right. Our goods exports in 2017 were roughly $130 billion. So adding roughly $100 billion a year- would it doesn't quite double our exports to China, but but it's a it's a sizable increase, one thirty to basically just call it two thirty by the time we get to the yeah, end. I mean, of this. Leihizer put it this way: he said, you know, you can think of it as eighty to hundred million in new sales for agriculture over the course of the next two years. That's nothing to sneeze at. That's massive, right? And so, uh, so the, the market access side looks pretty good. We've also apparently made some improvements in intellectual property. We don't know what they are yet. We've made some improvements in corporate structure in terms of uh, equity equity shares. Uh, also, in this, I think, I think the, the ambassador called it a 68-page agreement, uh, none 86. of which- 68, 86, same thing. Yeah, I can be dyslexic on a Monday morning yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then still do my job well. It's but, raining out too, you know, I mean, come on. But uh, we haven't seen the, the agreement in, in the text yet, but, and, uh, but we're, so we're going to learn more. But, but there, there, are, there are both components there, which is, I think, a good, a good first step. I'm much more cynical uh, about this. I think shocking. I think we were taken to the cleaners. Uh, really? On it. I, well, there's not much there. I mean, it's hard to be definitive for the reason Scott said. It, it's not. It not only is not public, but Ambassador Lighthizer indicated significant parts of it are never going to be public. Uh, the purchase commitments uh, are not going to be public right. because he says they'll disrupt the market which is an odd thing to say because trade agreements usually end up being public as far as you know, those kinds of commitments yeah, are concerned. people like predictability. <laughs> yeah, you like to know what it is. Yeah, but right. if they buy $40 billion or $50 billion more per year of agricultural stuff, that is significant. The question is uh, – there's two questions. One, uh, can we grow that much stuff? And how do our farmers feel about having a single customer? In 2017, which is the base year they're using for this – the combined total of all of our U.S. sales of corn, wheat, pork, and soybeans, and cotton, global sales of all those combined was $47.2 billion. So if we're going to sell an additional $40 billion on top of uh, what we have been selling the Chinese uh, before, that's almost – that's almost our entire production. Well, no, the, uh, almost our entire export production and in commodities. Yes. Well, There's a ton of processed food. There's live animals. There's a, tre a tremendous number. I mean, the beef and pork producers may, may be part of this deal as well. Uh, which well, are, I, which said, are, I said pork is in there. Oh, pork's it's, in there. I'm sorry. Pork's in there. And uh, the Chinese tend to buy more – Raw materials and processed foods. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll see if we can make inroads there. But the the question to me, the question is: A, do we have that much stuff? But right. B, how do our farmers feel about what will inevitably mean stiffing some other customers and selling to the Chinese, going into a market where the, the Chinese government has a long history of arbitrarily restricting or, you know, increasing or decreasing uh, purchases for political reasons? I mean, it's it's classic case of putting all your eggs in one basket. Uh, which I think may end up uh, being a mistake for the farmers. Well, we'll, the we'll see if that happens. It's a big, diverse economy, and there's lots of lots of planting options that are going to be exercised. And so, well, yeah. Then there's then we will see. I mean, I'm happy. It would be nice but, to be wrong about this, but if you look at the IP stuff and the financial services stuff, if we ever see the fine print, I think the fine print will say on IP. You know, we're going to do what we told Obama we would do, except this time we mean it. Mm. Uh, and on financial services, it's going to be we're going to do 
what we told Obama we, uh, we were going to do, but this time we'll actually do it. These are not huge ad- additional commitments. They didn't fulfill their last commitments on the subject. Uh, and I think maybe this time they will. I think uh, on IP, what they'll probably do, promise to do is put their commitments into law, which is what the May talks broke down on. Correct. Uh, I've, this has always baffled me. It's not a rule of law state. And I don't understand why putting them into law reassures us very much in the case of the Chinese. But maybe they'll do that and we'll be happy. But I'm not sure that there's going to be a material difference in uh, the way they behave on any of these issues. Well, one thing interesting to, to, to me was that Lighthizer said over the weekend that ultimately whether this agreement works is going to be determined by not by us, but by the Chinese. And he, right. said, and he said that it, it'll depend on who's making the decisions in China, whether the hardliners, are, it's going to be, if, if the hardliners make the decisions in China, we'll have one outcome. And if the reformers are making the decisions in China, which is what the administration hopes, we're going to get another outcome. Yeah. Bill's made this point a number of times. So we talked about China over the year, which is that, uh, that many of the things that the United States would like to see happen are sort of pro-market, pro-competitiveness reforms. And the reform economists, at least in China, I don't know how many policy officials there that amounts to these days, but the reformers in China have always wanted something fairly similar to that. And and they know they know it would be good for them to, to accept some of these demands, but whether or not that is they're the ones who are will, will give the prevailing advice is unclear. I think I, I think I was right about that. The problem is there's really only one decision maker in China, right? And that's Xi Jinping. And uh, this is a conversation you could have with our other our colleague Jude Blanchett, yeah, uh, who's the Freeman chair here. I think he would say that that uh, Xi is more in the hardliner category on this stuff than the softline category or the reform category. Uh, not what people expected when he came in, but it's the way yes. that it's turned out. So I'm not entirely optimistic that it's going to turn out the way that we hope. But he's right; it could. Well, we are going to have to watch that really closely. Um, What do we expect is next with China? A lengthy phase two. The president said phase two talks would start right away. Uh, Lighthizer did not say that yesterday. Uh, They don't plan to sign phase one until the first week of January, apparently. So I don't see anything starting until after that. The president has said different things at different times. Most recently, he's been saying that he's he thinks that he'll finish phase two after the election, which is convenient because then he doesn't have to fail before the election. Uh, he can fail after uh, because that's what's going to happen. We've talked about that. The idea that the Chinese uh, will give him the remaining stuff we want is is unrealistic. You know, he's picked a lot of the low-hanging fruit. And negotia- negotiators that are professionals will tell you this is a mistake. If you pick all the low-hanging fruit in the beginning, you've got nothing to negotiate with later on except the really hard things that nobody wants to do. And so that's where we're going we're to find ourselves now. It's not that they've got nothing left to give. They do, but uh, not as much as they did to this time. So I think it's going to be a long negotiation. It may take until after the election. I think he would, he would much prefer to have a deal that he could brag about next October but I think if he if it doesn't look like he's going to be able to brag about it, guaranteed he'll it'll slip till after the election. The other wild card is he's not a patient guy. You know what happens in April or May when reporters start asking him what's the deal on China? Why haven't you gotten anything? And he gets nervous and starts threatening tariffs again. Could be. Well, but keep in mind a lot of the tariffs stay in place. 
I mean, what we've had is <clears throat> what didn't happen is the list 4B tariffs, which were supposed to go into effect on Sunday, d did not. They were postponed. But there are – it's list 1, 2, and 3 that are still in place and unchanged. List 4A, which was facing 15 percent tariffs on roughly 120 billion dollars of imports, roughly speaking, <clears throat> uh, goes from 15 to seven and a half. But those first three lists, which are all now at 25 percent tariffs, are staying right where they are and there's no promise, at least in phase one, to affect them at all. Now, once again, that gets you back to predictability, but it does get you uh, a, a different set of, of sort of terms of trade than existed before well, this thing started. And the agreement apparently has two semi-contradictory provisions. In one place, it says there won't be any new tariffs imposed while we're negotiating phase two. Elsewhere, it says that if the Chinese don't comply with phase one, we can snap back uh, the, old, the old tariffs or we can impose new ones. So not all of the uncertainty has been removed. It's been removed, I think, for a while because we won't know if they're complying or not for some months. I mean, you don't... Uh, but we yeah. can clamp back down whenever we want. Uh, apparently, it says that. And of course, that's going to be a while because if you look at the soybean crop cycle, you know, we're not going to be buying a lot of soybeans, I don't think, in February, March. That's, you know, the crop right. comes in later. So we won't know if they're complying or not in, until, you know, well into, the, well into the calendar year. But at some point, if he decides they're cheating on any of this stuff, he can go back and reimpose them. So business is still potentially on the hook. But isn't, isn't a problem with this strategy what you've always said, Bill, is that you can't just flip the switch on and off so easily. Well, right. Uh, and the farmers, the far, I mean, the farmers will be happy, but they've, you know, they're going to have to make some, uh, rearrange their marketing. They're going to have to rearrange their markets. Um, manufacturers are going to have to change things. I think uh, we have neither. I don't think either Scott or I have ever felt that decoupling was going to be complete. No, uh, it's significant. really not. A, some of it will continue. Some it, of it yeah, won't. and and look, one of the things that has happened in industry, at least, is diversifications of the, of supply chains. In other words, the logistics managers have gotten the message that that this can happen, and they 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 were they were there, leaning into that already because labor costs were going up in China because of its development trends. Okay, there were some reasons to evaluate how much of your supply you had in China you know, on a going basis. But the, but the, the tariff escalation that's happened over the last 18 months has really sharpened those decisions. And so we're into a diversification of those. But Bill's right. These are two, these are the two largest economies in the world. And you can't decouple them entirely. And, and no, no, one, no one would really, you know, may, it wouldn't make sense to try. It'd be bad. It'd be bad for the, the, the consumers and citizens of both places. What? Despite the posture that we've been putting up. Oh, yeah. I think what people who watch company activity closely, I talked to somebody the other day who uh, works with a lot of these companies, what they see happening is that companies that have a significant presence there uh, will continue to have a significant presence there to, in order to service their China market and their Asia market, where the tariffs don't matter because you know right. they're not coming back here. For companies whose business model is to manufacture in China and ship back to the United States, they're the ones that are on the hook. Uh, and they're the ones that I think in some cases are going to be looking to alter their supply chains or to move out of China. But that's been going on anyway, partly for the reason Scott mentioned, that China's uh, wage rates have been going up for, for a number of years. Yes. It's not a new development. Yeah, the tariffs just escalated that thinking in a lot of places and, and uh, made it more urgent.
Finally, one last thing that we're watching is the World Trade Organization and the appeals court. Is it broken? What's going on with the situation? Well, it's disabled. Dispute settlement happens in two stages uh, in uh, the WTO. The first stage is what's called a panel. And the panel is formed basically ad hoc. And it, it can be – almost anyone can belong to it. But the appellate body – had functioned as the appeals organization that were that was a roster of of people, uh, and I believe seven. That the well, a full roster was seven, uh, basically lawyers, mostly lawyers. They didn't have to be, but but the the appellate body members were there to basically correct legal errors in panel decisions. But it made it the existence of the appellate body uh, made for both uh, authoritative interpretations of WTO. Law, as it were, and it made binding results of the dispute settlement. So, what happened is through a series of blocks, the appellate body membership went from seven to one as of last Tuesday of last week. So, it takes three appellate body members to hear an appeal. Right. So, so not going to work. So, the appellate body is basically disabled, which disables both the authoritative interpretation function of the body, and it disables binding dispute settlement. There is some residual action. It turns out that the two members whose terms expired last week notified the, the, the secretariat that they're going to continue to work on cases that where the hearings were held, but the work wasn't finished, which is one of the things the United States has objected to, but they're going to do it anyway. Uh, and uh, what I heard this morning was that there were four cases in that category, two on the same thing, and two other cases, uh, and that the two of the four actually were finished before last Tuesday. They just haven't come out yet. Uh, that was one between Russia and Ukraine, and one between Canada and the U.S. on something called supercalendered paper. The one remaining case that I think will be concluded actually is an important one, um, kind of for the United States, but they're not a participant, and that's on plain packaging of tobacco. Uh, which is not, which is really two cases because there's been two separate complaints, uh, and that will have a big impact on a lot of countries. The uh, the countries that support plain packaging requirements, the Australians are the, are the ones that are the, the defendants here. They won in the panel, and then that was appealed by the the countries that uh, I think these days mostly Central American countries that brought the who grow tobacco, who uh, brought the complaint. Uh, we'll see how it comes out. But that one, I think, will be finished. I think uh, the latest conversations I've had s suggest that, you know, th if this is going to get resolved, it'll get resolved at the next ministerial meeting, which is in Kazakhstan in June, that there is probably – it would probably be fairly easy to reach agreement on specific changes that of, about things that we don't like because there's a lot of countries that don't like them like the fact that the rules say you have to do the work in 90 days and they routinely take more than 90 days. But the fundamental issue is, as one of my uh, friends put it, is there's a culture difference here. The United States has an originalist view of the WTO that they shouldn't be interpreting. They should just be, you know... Correcting legal errors. Correcting yeah. legal errors. And the EU in particular uh, has whatever the opposite of an originalist view is. They think that this should be a court. It should be making new law. It should be filling in the gaps, fleshing everything out. It's a fundamental difference of view. And it's not clear that, you know, fixing specific little things like 90 days will satisfy the United States as long as 
there are other parties that persist in having a, a fundamentally different view of what the organization is for. So we may end up in a situation in which the United States will not take yes for an answer, that the other comp- countries are going to come to them and say, here are the reforms we're prepared to make, which is everything we've complained about, but we're not prepared to say that the appellate body is something different from what we think it is. Well, that's the last word for today, but not the last word for trade this season. Sorry it was such a long word. No, no. Yeah. Well, no, your words are your words are gold. Bill was right. Yes. I will remind you every time that happens. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, trade guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.